Hello and welcome to the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shelat and I'm delighted to say that once again I've been joined by Alex Barker aka the Euro expert. How are you doing Alex? I'm doing very good Neil. I'm very happy to uh, talk about the new season that's coming up very quickly. Very quickly indeed. We just have well under a week to go by the time this goes out and I'm delighted to say that alongside you we've once again got Varun Vasudevan, who runs the Devil's DNA account on Twitter. How are you, Varun? I'm great. Glad to be back. And yeah, the season is almost here. Let's get into it. And for once, you must be excited about the Manchester United season. So, perhaps unfamiliar territory for you. Uh, but we are here, indeed, to talk about Manchester United, among other teams. Today, we'll be talking about the upcoming English Premier League season. And uh, to be specific, we'll be picking out some teams we're looking forward to watching, both for you know good reasons and bad. So we'll have a good mix of teams from all over the table uh, to discuss. Uh, each of us will be going through two each, so there'll be six in total. And then right at the end, we'll have our full table predictions, which I'm sure will go down very well with everyone. But let's start with our teams and we'll start with Varun and his beloved Manchester United. So, Varun, uh, I, I suppose we should get started with a very quick review of uh, last season, which was Eric Ten Hag's first in charge. How did you see that going? Yeah, I actually think Ten Hag came with a lot of um, problems. He inherited a very awkward squad. Uh, we came through a really bad season. The Ragnik era is going to go down as one of the worst eras in uh, the club's phase. And then I came with a lot of problems. Ronaldo up front, De Gea in goal, a lot of midfielders who are okay. And I thought he did well. I mean, the season ended pretty well. I did not um, imagine we'd come top four, but we came third. And there were some results that were good. I mean, the Carabao Cup win was excellent. I had no idea that we'll win any kind of trophy. And we went deep even in the other cups. So overall, I would say. On the surface level, these were as good results as any manager could have got. And in between, we lost Ronaldo as well, which I think was a big blessing in disguise. I was never happy with that signing. So I think the season went well. And what I really like about Ten Hag is that he is a lot more pragmatic than he looks. There were a lot of rumors of him coming and playing this very, very ambitious possession style. Um, a high-press style, um, even at the cost of anything. And it really didn't turn out to be that way. I mean, uh, I knew he was flexible, but then the de- lengths to which he was willing to go to secure a win, to get the best out of his players, was really impressive. He was willing to sit deep, to rely on the counter, to rely on transitions, to get the best out of Bruno, Rashford. So, I think he's got a very, very good handle of who his best players are, what their best roles are, um, even little, little things like the way he used Fred, for example, he used him high instead of deeper. So all these small, small things, I think was really impressive from Ten Hag. And as a result of that, I feel he now knows what to improve. And that is why we come into this summer, probably very clear about what our transfer targets are. Almost everyone um, who follows United knew which are the three, four, five big gaps. And we've gone about going through those gaps one by one. So I think that was because of the clarity he has on player roles and because of the season we had, it was very obvious where we need to improve. So let's talk about that then. Let's talk about your transfer business in the summer and, and the gaps you alluded to. How do you think those have been addressed? Yeah, I mean... At the end of last season, if you had to tell me which are the three big gaps in order of priority, I would say goalkeeper, midfielder, striker. And it's no surprise that we have got... Actually, it is a big surprise considering Manchester United. (laughs) Uh, We never get the targets that we uh, actually should. We've just been ignoring a defensive midfielder, a goalkeeper and a striker for like four or five years. I think Matic, Lukaku were the last good ones. And Digia has been three years more than he should have. So it is a very, very big, uh, you know, refreshing change to see Onana, Mount and Hoyland be signed. Uh, these would probably be the three biggest gaps. And if you had pushed me for a fourth and fifth, I would have said another deep controlling midfielder 
we are linked to Amrabad. And the fifth one I would have said would be a right center back, you know, someone who can upgrade on Varane, especially in position, uh, in possession. And we are linked to Todibo, we were linked to Disasi as well. So the, the vibes I'm getting from the club are they really know their targets. This is, in that sense, it's been a very, very surprising window where we know our top targets and we're going out to get them. And you never know, depending on sales, we might miss out on one or two. But the first three so far, I've been really happy. And this is probably the most clear in a transfer window Manchester United have been. And I think it all flows from the manager and how he wants to play. So let's talk about then those three confirmed transfers that you spoke about. Mm-hmm. Um, let's probably start with Andre Onana, goalkeeper, because you know, that was probably the biggest area of concern, as you said. Yeah, I mean, I've not been a big fan of Degea for a long time now. I, I think he dropped off somewhere after the Spain World Cup itself, which was, which is, uh, I mean, the previous World Cup was more than four years ago, uh, four years ago now from this summer. And I think he dropped off from there. At the very least, I would say for three years, he's been a below average goalkeeper. And I would say his shot stopping is okay, above average. And his other attributes, claiming, distribution, sweeping are are like terrible. And that's where Onana comes in because, I mean, his shot, shot stopping is as good as DK or probably better. And this is something people don't give him credit for. I've seen a lot of Onana footage uh, with Ajax and Inter, he's a good shot stopper. He's at least an 8 on 10 shot stopper. And he is a 10 on 10 distributor. And I think this is where he really brings a lot of value. He is like that extra player in build-up. And you can already see in the preseason games, he does that move where he joins the back four, uh, where he's like a left centre-back and Lisandro Martinez pushes into midfield. And that gives us that extra man in build-up. And we did not have that with Dikea. And last year, our build-up was one of the biggest problems. So, I think Onana immediately comes in and solves a big part of the build-up issue. He also is a good shot-stopper. He is a good sweeper and a claimer. Um, I think the only places where I would say he can improve a bit more, he's he's a little aggressive on the sweeping. We saw in the last friendly, he got chipped. And I'm not saying it's his fault. That was 90% Dallow's fault. But then he does have that over overzealous attitude to step out a bit too much or try to claim a ball that he shouldn't. He flaps at some of the crosses as well. So those are the only things I need to. Uh, he needs to improve on. But I think he comes in comfortably as uh, one of the top three goalkeepers in the league. And I think he can get to the second just after Allison. Well, that's that's high praise indeed. Uh, but let's now talk about a player who's maybe, you know, more sort of uh, in, in the talent mode and that he has great potential. But I'm interested to know what you think about him now. What do you think Rasmus Hoyland will bring to United? So I really like this signing a lot. I mean, okay, we all wanted Victor Osimhen. You know, uh, everyone knows that's the that's the big prize and probably one of the best strikers in the world after Holland. And... But then he's he's not available for a logical price. And that is the problem with the striker market. Anyone worth his salt is going at rates like 70, 80, 90, 100 million. Randall Kolo Muani is being quoted at 100 million. So given the problem of the striker market, I think 75 million for Hoyland, yes, it is a bit expensive. But I think it will be worth it in the long run because his major traits, you know, the two, three elite traits that he has, they are very good and they give him a very high ceiling. If I had to name three qualities that Hoyland has, I would say his movement is the first. He is an amazing mover. He's the guy who's always looking for that space to attack in the final third. He's either running the channel or he's running between the centre-backs or he's turning around his wide centre-back or full-back. Um, he just keeps making those moves and he keeps getting the ball. He, he has a 99 percentile on progressive passes received over the last 365 days. I mean, that is an incredible stat. Um, his second best attribute would be his shooting. I think he's a very good shot taker. He, Because of his movement, he gets into good positions and he always gets shots on target. He's not a very big volume shot taker. He's not the guy who's, uh, you know, attempting shots from outside the box or from wide areas. He likes to either dribble or move to get into those good areas within the penalty box. And then he takes a shot. So I think he had only three shots from outside the penalty 
box last year. And that is a really good sign. And that's the kind of striker United need. We have a lot of um, long-distance shot-takers in Rashford Bruno. So a guy who sticks to the box and takes shots is good. Um, and I think his third rate would be his dribbling. He's actually a very underrated dribbler. His close, close control is good. Um, the two, three things I think he needs to improve on is aerial uh, aerial duels. He's not great aerially. He tries to use his physicality, but he often struggles. He's not great at hold-up, you know, the back-to-goal hold-up when you're battling centre-backs. You take the ball down and then pass to someone else. He's not great at that. He rather prefers to move away from crowded central areas and go into the channels or gaps. So I think that is one thing that will probably improve as he ages. And to be very honest, if I really wanted a perfect transfer window, I would still want another target man striker, you know, maybe someone on loan uh, to give that plan B option to just lump it forward. I'm not sure Hoyland is great for that. But yeah, overall, I think it's a great signing. I can easily see him play 30 games and get about 15 goals in the immediate season and then obviously improve and contribute more. And lastly, let's talk about Mason Mount. Let's maybe have your thoughts on it first and then I'm I'm told there's an interesting opinion coming in from Alex. So I look forward to that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised Alex has an opinion. Um, a lot of people have an opinion on Mason Mount because it is... A bit of a divisive signing. Um, to be fair, I wanted a more first-phase midfielder, a more build-up oriented midfielder, you know, who can uh, come beside Casemiro. So, I think to understand the role Mount will play, you have to understand Ten Hag's tactics. He plays a 4-3-3, but the left-sided 8 um, is what I like to call an all-phase player. He drops in the first phase to help in build-up. He progresses in the second phase. And in the third phase, he also joins the front five. So that left-sided midfielder is a very, very complete midfielder. And there's no surprise that Ten Hag wanted Frankie De Jong because he takes all the boxes. Great builder player, great progressor can also join the final third and give that final ball. But now after Frankie De Jong, almost every option lacks something or the other. There's no perfect midfielder. And this is where the debate starts. Uh, I would have preferred if we erred on the side of build-up, even at the cost of attacking qualities because I think with Bruno, Sancho, Rashford, we have enough of the attack covered. I don't think Tenag thinks so. He would rather have another attacking midfielder and try and make him develop the first phase ability. And I think that's where Mason Mount comes in. Tenag looks at him as a solution for the high press, for the final third creation, for the progression. And he feels he can develop those first phase ability abilities to come deep, pick the ball, turn and then dribble. So, I think there's going to be a lot of adjustment for Mason Mount. He is 24, so I'm not going to put it beyond him. And there'll be a lot of games where we don't have that high press, where we are pushing up against a low block in a 3-1-6 shape. And Mount will look really good. Uh, him and Bruno behind the front three, it'll look electric. He will really help our high press a lot, much better than Ericsson did. I do think in some games where we're under pressure or against a big team, he will struggle in that role. And probably this is where the Amrabat signing comes in. Probably in those games, we put in Amrabat beside Casemiro and let Mount play on the left wing or on, or on the right wing. So that's my take on how I think Mount will be used this season. What do you think, Alex? So I worry for him because... So my two strongest thoughts on him, two things that I, I feel that from what I've seen are indisputable is that one of his best assets is getting in between the lines in the final third and receiving the ball. And you kind of outlined Ten Hag maybe feels he can bring that quality and trait into the first phase and find space deeper down the pitch to turn and push the ball forward. Um, however, the other thing I feel really strongly on is that positionally, um, out of possession, he's got a lot to work on. I think Chelsea at Chelsea... Um, particularly in the first half of last season, before things really started going wrong and like more excuses could be made, my biggest critique of him, uh, especially in a four-three-three uh, shape, would be that when his other two midfielders are holding their press, he'd charge out, and then that would leave them completely undermanned. And my fear would be in a three-one-six shape. Say you are playing him, Bruno Fernandez ahead of a Casemiro. Um, I don't trust Mason Mount well enough defensively. Well. I don't trust him more defensively than a Bruno Fernandes, someone else who's, you know, is attacking midfielder, right? 
and I think that's a very um what's the top heavy midfield and I personally feel that his Mason Mount's final ball was quite inconsistent uh, he had that really good 21-22 season but if you go if you go in between the weeds of the Mason Mount is terrible a sector of the Chelsea fan base and obviously there are some people who are just like saying it because they think it's funny they the where a lot of the criticism originated was from especially on counter-attacks when there's a great time to play a player, uh, player through Mason Mount will often pick the wrong option and he won't see the good pass and my fear would be if you have my fear would be that Manchester United are not able to play Bruno Fernandes and Mason Mount in the same team consistently and if it's a choice between the two, Bruno Fernandes should play over Mount every single day. And if you're going to play him out on the wing, though, you're going to play him over Rashford. I don't think that's. A, I don't think anyone wants that. So, I I hear your points. I just I've just fear for Mason Mount that we could be sitting here in a year's time and thinking if he doesn't have a home in this Manchester United side, it's been two years since he was really good. The stock's really beginning to fall off, and inevitably, if he doesn't have a good year this year then there'll be two fan bases gunning for his fall down, which is only going to affect him mentally and potentially see a very bad outcome for him uh, in his career. That's quite interesting. I will stay well clear of that discussion. Uh, <laughs> instead, uh, let's, let's instead have very quickly, Varun, your expectations for United as a whole this season. Um, I'll keep it simple. I actually think... Um, surface level, the results will be the same. Uh, if we get third and two deep cup runs, I'll be really happy. I do think, though, we can look forward to gameplay improvements. Our underlying numbers last year were not good. We were sixth for XG, seventh for XGA. We scored lesser goals than Brentford. I mean, only 55 goals in the league. Um, our defensive line height, our possession, all our underlying metrics were pretty average. They were in the sixth, seventh, eighth. So I would like us to at least come in the top three for most of them, have a solid almost 80-point kind of third. Um, and then, yeah, even if it's third and two deep cup runs, that's fine. See, on your point there about Man United having a decent season, I do not disagree. Maybe we'll, we'll touch on that later in our predictions, Varun. But I think overall, I think you're, you're pretty spot on. I think you can have a, a strong year and the steps are going to go forward. And another team, the Neil has said that potentially could see steps forward, or at least I've seen a lot of discussion online, probably you too, Varun, um, at Bournemouth. Apparently, they're meant to have a very good season because they've made some funky moves in the summer. Neil, could you start us off, please? Because the last time I checked in, they had a manager, I can't remember the name of, in charge, get sacked. Yeah, that was Gary O'Neill, and that was uh, perhaps a slightly controversial decision for some people, maybe, because obviously he guided Bournemouth to safety last season when it was not looking very good at the start and although they ended up finishing 15th they were never really in the relegation battle they were never really worried about going down so much they were well clear of that absolute scrap uh, right at the bottom between a bunch of teams Uh, but as I say they ended up 15th which means they did drop off a fair bit and if you look at the underlying numbers specifically the expected goal difference uh, it's a bit concerning because they have they had the worst XGD in the league uh, at negative uh, 0.67 per 90. So on that metric, they were the worst team in the league. And for that reason, I think it's a very good job that they've moved on, parted ways, sacked whatever, uh, Gary O'Neill. Because although he, he did his job, which was getting them to stay up, uh, I don't think they can or I don't think they should want to stay up in this way every season. They should look to improve and get better as you said and I think they have done just that with their next appointment see I do remember I played them a little bit but I do remember this news breaking and um, my main thought was yes there may be statistical merit in sacking O'Neill but sometimes something you can't always emotionally cater for is well something you can't cater for is the emotions here and if you're a player at Bournemouth you've just survived how do you feel if the owners of Sacks, your gut, the guy who brought you, who saved you, who kept you in the Premier League? Like you think, what are you doing here? So you ha- the na- replacement has to be absolutely perfect. Why don't you tell us about the man Andoni Areola? Have I pronounced that correctly? 
You have it all. I think that's about right. Um, yeah, as you say, that's as good an appointment as they were going to get. I think that's almost the perfect appointment for Bournemouth. Now, I'll just give a little bit of background about Iraola. He spent the last couple of seasons in Spain at Rayo Vallecano, who in many ways can be compared to Bournemouth in terms of stature. So they too are, you know, a team with not the best of squads in the league, to say the least. And on paper, purely on paper, you would expect them to be battling against relegation. However, with Iraola, they have consistently stayed clear of the relegation battles and finished, you know, mid-table, lower mid-table. But he has, without a shadow of a doubt, overachieved in terms of league position with them. And the the standout attribute uh, from a tactical point of view about um, his, his teams is their defensive uh, approach and especially their intense press and it, it's not any ordinary press it's something that uh, we call a hybrid press with the term coming from your colleague Alex John McKenzie uh, essentially this is it to, to be very simple it's basically a sort of a combination of a zonal press which is obviously you know the structures we talk about like 4-4-2 you know 352 whatever and a player oriented press so the, it, in, in parts of the pitch they will go player for player against the opposition and in other parts of the pitch, it's zonal. You know, this is something that probably deserves a whole podcast of its own. So we'll save that for later. But all you need to know is that Iraola is a very good manager and his defensive tactics are really, really cool. I mean, that is fair enough. I've, I managed to catch his Vallecano team uh, uh, last season a few times. And the, the one takeaway I had was I was scanning them for, you know, standout talents and I came away with the impression that there wasn't really many players in the team who, like, you know, were dragging, were the reason for the team's success, and it was more the system. And I remember being very impressed with the press indeed. But that's the out-of-possession stuff. Could you talk us through what they're doing in possession? Will that be enough to cope with the Premier League? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, many teams in the Premier League are trying to adopt a more possession-based, you know, short-passing build-up approach. But I don't expect Iraola to do, to do that. He certainly did not do that uh, at Rayo Vallecano. Uh, they mainly, obviously, everything for them was centered around their press. But in possession, they mainly looked to sort of go long from the back. Uh, but it was not aimless long balls. They knew what they were doing. So generally, what you'd have is their fullbacks would tend to push up a fair bit. And the centre-backs and holding midfielders would get on the ball and look long towards the wings. So you'd have, obviously, the wingers up there, the full-backs joining in, and maybe the attacking midfielder drifting as well. So they'd have a good few players on the wings, uh, send long balls in that direction, obviously with the primary aim being to win to win the aerial duel and win the second ball and attack. But even if they don't, uh, they had so many players in those zones that they could counter-press really well uh, and try and win the ball back immediately and then again, attack with the opposition defence uh, rather, you know, out of structure. So this is something I'm quite excited to see as well and I'm really curious to see how it will work in the Premier League. Well, something else I'm curious to see in the Premier League is how their transfers do. Last, uh, I think it was in January, they brought in Hamid Traore on loan, who they've made permanent, correct me if I'm wrong, um, brought in Ia Zabani, a Ukrainian defender from Dynamo Kiev, who have been a, a huge fan of for since I was researching them for the Euros. And this summer as well, they've also brought in uh, Milos Kerkesh and Justin Cliver. Now, to let the listeners in behind the curtain, in our pod plan, Neil was about to talk about how interesting those signings are, but I want to challenge you briefly. Well, not challenge you, but just set your argument up because we could talk about how interesting these signings are, but what makes them different to the Leeds window last year when we all said Brendan Aronson, Jorginho Rutter, no, he came in January, Luis Sinistera, you know, Mark Rocker, these are fun, interesting transfers that could work out. And obviously, they didn't particularly work out. What are going to make Bournemouth's transfers different? Well, I think, again, it, it goes back to probably Iraola because I expect he will have a very clear plan in place for what he how he wants to play uh, and obviously then what players he wants to use in what roles and positions. And as you say, these are all... I mean, based on their previous work, these are all really interesting transfers. You alluded to the ones in January. I think 
if I'm not mistaken, they also got uh, Dango Otara in then. And he's, again, a really, really exciting player. Obviously, spent half a season, but I'm very excited to see him uh, under Iraola. Kerkes, in particular, I think is one of the best fits in the sense that he's someone who can do really well as an overlapping, advancing fullback. And as I mentioned, that's exactly what uh, you know Iraola uses. Hamid Traore, I mean, again, we saw a bit of him in the Premier League already. Uh, yet really, really exciting forward. And again, someone who fits uh, because fits uh, Iraola's system because he's not necessarily a pure wide player. Uh, and of course, with the fullbacks coming in, their wing, uh, Iraola's wingers would tend to get go inwards a bit. So I think all in all, some great moves. The only one I have a slight question mark about is uh, Justin Clivert. And I think, you know, I'd be interested to hear maybe some of your thoughts on him because obviously he was very, very highly rated. But it's, I mean, I'm not that high on him anymore. I I don't know where it's gone wrong, but something seems to have gone wrong for him. I mean, um, I just wanted to weigh in on Clivert. Um, he was always one of those wonder kids. I mean, son of Patrick Clivert and came from the Ajax system. Roma, Leipzig, Nice, Valencia, Bournemouth. I mean, before Bournemouth, he's been in almost every big club. And he's just not managed to give that single season where you go like, okay, he's one of the best kids in the world. And I think his best season, he had 11 goals for Axe. After that, he's never touched that again. It's just been 4, 6, 2, 5. And he's just not got going. And now my probably harsh take is he's just not that good. And I don't even know if he's going to start for Burnhamath and uh, play regularly and do really well here. And he's now pushing 24. So my probably little harsh take is that he's just one of those players who was never that good. But for some reason, everyone did think so. Maybe aesthetics, maybe the way he dribbles with the ball. Uh, he does look good. He's just not effective. So um, what, do, what do you think? I mean, Neil, do you disagree with that? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's It's a tough one, but... As you say, he was supremely talented, but then he's gone a bunch of places for fairly big clubs, pretty good managers. It's not worked out. So I guess <laughs> maybe if anyone can make it work out, then it'll be Raola. So yeah, should be an interesting one to watch. But I think let's move on now uh, from all these Bournemouth transfers to a team who are not doing too well in that regard. Uh, that's West Ham. Have they made a signing yet, Alex? They have, finally. Uh, we'll touch on in a second. We'll dive into why they've not been making many signings after selling Declan Rice for £100 million. Um, but they have managed to claim Edson Alvarez of Ajax, or at least at the time of recording. That like, looks like it's about to be completed. Um, it's an interesting move. He's a player, of my opinion's kind of developed on. Neil, I'm, I'm sure no doubt you have something on him as well. I remember last year I was talking to um, uh, Kees, Kees uh, Van Himmen from Twitter. I'm, I'm sorry, Kees, I've butchered your name, but I don't care. Um, I do care. I like your podcast. I remember talking to him a year ago on Twitter. Uh, I was saying, yeah, this guy's been up good numbers. He's good. Um, could be a very nice signing, good passing stats. And uh, Kees said that he's not actually that good, a uh, very limited passer. And if he wasn't in this Ajax team, he would not be as good as he... He wouldn't get the reputation he deserves. And as I looked a bit more into him at the time, I started to feel more to that opinion. But I will say, I've I've checked in with him again, read a few uh, reports on him uh, this uh, from the last season. And apparently, according to many Ajax viewers, he was maybe one of the only players who did well last season. Uh, obviously, they missed out on Champions League football the first time in two decades, I want to say, or near enough that time. Uh, he's always been a very tenacious player, very high in the tackles interceptions. I think he was near the top of the league for starting possession, which means, you know, turning the ball over. And his progressive passes have actually gone up as well from um, 5 per 90 to just over 7 per 90. So maybe there is reason to get excited. I don't know what you guys think. Neil, do you have an opinion on him? Yeah, I th- I think I'll I'll side with Gaze uh, on this one because I I agree with him in the sense that playing for a team, a possession dominant team like Ajax, helps him look really good in the stats. But I'm not so sure if that will translate to a team like West Ham in a league like the Premier League, 
which is obviously quite different to the Eredivisie. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I I'd assume he's being brought in to replace Rice, but I'm not sure he'll be able to provide the same sort of quality in possession uh, as Rice. So it's an interesting one. And I mean, they, they really need him to work because they haven't made any other signings. So Alex, I mean, what the hell is going on there? Well, I was about to say, the, the thing I'd agree with you with is I'm not for a second suggestion he can replace Declan Rice. I think you need two players to do that. And it's worth, this is the Tactics podcast, but we've got to touch on what's happening there. I mean, it isn't done at the time of recording. So right now, West Ham is still the only team in the Premier League yet to complete a signing. And that's, if you read reports from The Athletic, uh, I've got no relation to them whatsoever, and The Guardian, um, you will see that, or hear, allegedly, there's a big dispute between the new technical director, sporting director, uh, Steiden um, from Bayer Leverkusen, and manager David Moyes. Moyes seems to want to lean more to homegrown English players, so a bit more experienced. Uh, Steiden from Leverkusen, who's built you know, one of the youngest, most exciting teams, wants to take the gambles on European talents. They've just got completely opposing uh, philosophies. They've not been able to get anything done. I mean, I've seen, I don't know how legitimate these reports are, but I've seen reports circling the West Ham fan base that Boyce has a bad start to the season. He's gone. I've seen equally other takes like Boyce is going to get this guy out. He's just won the Conference League, but then Moyes did almost get relegated last season. So behind the scenes at West Ham, it's a total mess and it's the most important summer window probably in the 21st century of them. They've lost their best player ever. Uh, I don't think as many people, well, best player in the Premier League ever. Um, I don't think anyone could disagree with that take from 1990 onwards, uh, excusing the Bobby Moores, of course. Um, (laughs) It's just such a monumental window and it's on track to be their least productive in years. I, th- I think let's, let's go back to the point you made about replacing Rice because I thought that was an interesting one. So, I mean, obviously they haven't done a good job of it, but what what do you think are, you know, mainly the implications of losing Rice? I think Declan Rice, he did so much in that West Ham team. They, on paper, played a 4-2-3-1 with him in a midfield pivot with Sujek. But in practice, when West Ham had the ball, Sujek would go further forward and he could act as almost like a target man to bring down long balls. Lucas Paqueta would drop in next to Rice, both of them their best players on the ball, to help West Ham progress forward. And what Declan Rice was exceptional at, not only at winning the ball back uh, in the press or intercepting in more static play, um, defensive play, I'd say, but also he was able to provide good passing and ball carrying into space from that defensive midfield position. So it meant, in a way, all three players in West Ham could threaten you in the final third. Losing him not only means you lose that that threat, but it also means that you lose someone who protected Thomas Suchek, who's not defensively or in possession particularly useful. It means you might have to put more pressure on Lucas Paqueta to drop deep and carry the ball forward, which... If you're a Chelsea or someone, that might be okay. But when you're West Ham and you've got a limited amount of players who is good in the final third as Lucas Paqueta, that could become a big issue. Essentially, you are having to rework your entire midfield. And it remains to be seen how West Ham are going to do that. Yeah, it's it's going to be quite interesting, as you say, and you know, potentially not very fun if you're a West Ham fan, but... Uh, should be so definitely one to watch. Uh, but I, I assume you'd expect them to be in the relegation battle. So I think that leads us in very nicely to the next team we'll be talking about. I mean, obviously, we've got one more each. We'll be a little quicker about these ones. Uh, we focused more on our first ones. But we'll now go on to Burnley, who are, of course, newly promoted back up from the championship. And I think everyone's been... Were either following them or hearing about them last season, having the big whiplash, the big change from Sean Dyche's 4-4-2 defending to Vincent Company's extremely possession-based, uh, you know, attacking stuff and obviously dominating the championship. So, Warren, maybe quickly tell us a bit about how that went. Yeah, I think in our last episode we spoke about going from 
Conte to Ange Postecoglou, right? And this is something similar. You're just going from a counter-based attack to a super possession, high-pressing-based attack. And the common point between both is you need a lot of signings. Um, Ange also required almost 20, 25 signings at Celtic. And company last year required 24 signings. And that is the cost of having to play your kind of game. But the result was good. They played your typical top team format, 4-3-3, 3-2-5 or 2-3-5 in possession. They had a lot of possession last year. They had 61% possession. But then I would also like to point out that they did overperform their XG a lot. They actually came third for expected goals in the league. But they were first for goals scored. So I do think they overperformed. Uh, where they did really well was in defense. They conceded very less. And this goes back to the point that when you keep a lot of possession, you're actually conceding very few shots. And I think that was more significant in terms of the way they kept the ball. They conceded very less. The transition defense was good because of the inverted fullbacks. So I think they were good in defense more than attack. And that is probably one important takeaway um, based on their championship season um, last season. Yeah, and that's also interesting because obviously coming up to the Premier League now is a very different level and they'll face different challenges. So I, I'm interested to know what your predictions for their season are because, you know, there's people talking all sorts of stuff about maybe them challenging top half and then others saying relegation battle. So what do you think? How will it go? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough to be the best team in the championship, dominate everyone in terms of possession um, and controlling the ball to suddenly going and playing that same game versus 19 teams who are arguably better than you. And we know from the past, Norwich have found this very difficult. And if you look towards the past, amongst promoted teams, which are the teams that did do well and get a top half or a top 12 finish, you have Sheffield United, you have Brentford. And the common point is they played a very pragmatic counter-attacking approach, which was good against 17, 18, 19 teams better than them. So I really doubt how Burnley will be able to dominate possession against anyone in the league. Uh, everyone's high press is now good. Everyone's build-up is now good. Uh, even your bottom half teams, they can play you off the park on any day. So I think it is going to be really tough. They have made a few interesting signings, but then none of the defenders look like if they were 1v1 against um, any of the wingers in the top half, uh, they would struggle. So I actually have a more cautious prediction for them. I think they will be in a relegation battle. I think in the end, um, company is a good coach. He will adjust things and he will make it through and I think they'll be safe. But I think they'll they'll be in a relegation battle for maybe half the season and just survive by the end. So, yeah, I mean, that's my Burnley take. Um, I do want to go to our next team and uh, I want to introduce Aston Villa. Um, Neil will be taking up their uh, season predictions and it's really interesting because I think they've had the most uh, significant managerial change last year. They went from Steven Gerrard to Unai Emery and I think that's a massive, massive upgrade. I don't think Gerrard is even Premier League level and Unai Emery is European elite. I mean, he's coached PSG to 93 points. So there was a lot of excitement and um, Aston Villa did really well. They finished 7th. So, I mean, the big questions are can they do it again? They are now in Europe. So, what do you think, Neil? Yeah, as you say, they're back in Europe, back for the first time in 13 years. And most importantly, in the UEFA Europa Conference League, which, as we all know, is the best competition in the world. <laughs> uh, and in all honesty, I think they have a pretty decent shot at the title because mm -hmm. you obviously don't have all the top teams there. You, you'll have a bunch of clubs uh, from all over Europe. And in that sense, I mean, we saw what West Ham did. Even as they finished, you know, in the relegation battle in the Premier League, they could still win the Europa Conference League. And so Willa, you'd expect, won't be in a relegation battle, certainly much better than that. Plus, they've got Unai Emery, who is an absolute master of winning European competitions. He's done that a bunch of times with Sevilla and Villarreal. His tactics are perfect for knockout football when he, had, when he moves on to that defensive shape, uh, especially his 4-4-2. 
So I think they have a very decent shot at the UEFA Europa Conference League title, which obviously would be huge uh, because they'll get a major trophy. And I think in the league, they'll be all right. Um, I think maybe they won't probably qualify for Europe again through the league because they were obviously very fun last season. But they did slightly overperform their underlying numbers. And of course, they sort of benefited from the likes of Chelsea and Tottenham being absolutely shocking. Uh, so I don't think they will be right in the mix for Europe. But I do think they should be able to get uh, a, a very comfortable you know, top half finish probably. Yeah, and um, they are trying really hard to improve their squad. I mean, the signings they have made... Some of these signings were linked to top four clubs for the last two years. You, The likes of DRB, Pau Torres, uh, Telemans. I mean, these were people who were linked to United, Chelsea, Liverpool, etc. in the last two years. So, they are big catches. Uh, what do you think their, their signings indicate? How will they fit? Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. I think they've done a pretty good job uh, in this window as well. You know, the, the players you named, as you say, Targets for top clubs and really exciting players as well. You know, DRB, absolutely top class right winger, so good on the ball. So I'm very excited to watch him. Uh, Pau Torres, of course, really good centre back, good enough defensively, and especially so good progressing the ball. And obviously, worked with uh, Unai Emery at Villarreal. And of course, I don't think we need to speak much about uh, Yuri Tillemans. Everyone's seen him for Leicester in the Premier League. Didn't have the best of seasons last time around, but. You know, we've seen what he can do before that. So, again, that should be a really fun one. So, yeah, I think, as you say, the transfers clearly show that they're looking forward. Uh, and I think, yeah, they'll, they'll be very comfortable in the league. And they will, towards the end of the season, I expect, turn their attention properly to the Europa Conference League. Obviously, if they do get to the knockouts, which I would expect them to. So, it's, it's an exciting time, certainly, at Villa Park. But let's go to somewhere else now where there's not-so-exciting times. And when there's not-so-exciting times, there, of course, is Alex Barker. So he is not going to be talking about Wolves. Or... <laughs> Alex is just a hater. Alex is a hater. <laughs> now he's going to tell you about why Wolves are going to have a bad season. So I mean, go on, Alex. What's, what's going on there? Well, they have had a pretty bad uh, summer behind the scenes. Uh, that's underselling it. Yuluna Pategi... Um, had a 45-minute interview with Gillian Balaguer on YouTube, which uh, it, was, it was peppered with questions about their weak summer. There's allegedly a lot of issues behind the scenes. Um, well, not issues behind the scenes. I think the issue is just Wolves haven't got the money to spend, it seems. Um, they've had a, a big lack of incomings. They've sold Ruben Nevers. They've sold Nathan Collins as well, I want to say. I'm mixing up my English centre-backs, but essentially there's a lot of fear around Wolves fans going into this season, especially since Lopetegui, we saw how it fell apart at Sevilla. He doesn't seem uh, super in at Wolves. They weren't amazing at the end of the last season. Tactically, they were very simplistic, um, relying on crosses. They weren't, you know, a high pressing team or anything, more kind of regroup um, to use the football manager term. Uh, so there's a bit of fear of going into them. But there's two points I want to mention, and I will lead straight into our predictions, gentlemen, as well. Because one thing I think is in Wolves' favour is that they will have now had a summer and down to the coach in a back four. I believe last summer they still were transitioning under Bruno Largi for a back three because he had that good um, first season with them. Um, Lopetegui has played a back four and he's going to stick for a back four. He's played with it in pre-season as well. Uh, that's the first time that's happened to Wolves in years. They've been trying to make that transition for years. I think that's going to be strong for them. And the other point is, I want to mention, they introduced a couple of interesting players last season uh, in João Gomes, their Brazilian midfielder, who provides a lot of defensive energy, and uh, Bubakar Kamara, a Marlian defender, I think I want to say from Mets. Um, he was player well in Liga. He's 21 years old. He's strong. Um Pair them two with Mateus Nunes. And that's actually a really valuable midfield. Um, a very good one technically as well. And I think the biggest problem with Wolves last summer was that, uh, well, they signed Zasa Kalajic, the striker from Stuttgart, um, 26-year-old Austrian, and he immediately ruptured his ACL uh, and he was out for the entire season. 
And that meant that Diego Costa ended up playing 1,200 minutes for Wolves. Uh, now Kalajic is back. He's starting games. And having an actual proper striker up front, that's going to be huge for them. You could even say it's a like, big reason why Bruno Lodge was sacked because he's just so hampered without a decent forward. And let's not forget the players like Mateus Kunhu in there. So despite you two rattling on about depressing Alex, I actually think they're going to be ended up mid-table. Do you want to say, uh, should we head into predictions now? Because I usually start at the top of the table. Um, I just want to quickly say, I think Wolves will be fine. And my bottom three, since uh, you not mentioned, Forrest, Luton and Sheffield. And I'll be ashamed if either of you have any, any teams that are grossly different to that. Yeah, but before we get into us, let's have your whole table first. Why don't oh, we start okay. at the top? Right, my go. whole table. Um, yeah. I'll rattle through it then. It's... Surprise, Manchester City winning the league. How did you um, Second is Liverpool, which off-camera Neil seems to think is interesting. Um, third yeah. is Man United. Fourth is Arsenal, so they're my top four. Then it goes Chelsea. Um, I think they'll be fine under Poch, but not quite there. Newcastle uh, in sixth. I think they will drop off. I'm not the biggest fan of their signings, but the vibes are good. Champions League football's there. Uh, Tottenham in seventh. I think it'll be a productive season, um, but... They still need another year or so under Postacoglu, and then they will really get going. Uh, eight Aston Villa, I don't actually think they're going to be doing as good as everyone thinks. Um, I think they'll do good in Europe, but Emery of Villarreal was pretty inconsistent in the league. Uh, ninth is Brighton. I'm expecting a big drop-off, as everyone knows what to expect from them. Um, not a big drop-off, but a decent one. Uh, tenth is Brentford. I think they'll be fine. Crystal Palace, 11th. They'll be fine. Twelfth is Wolves. 13th, West Ham United. I trust them, I think, to sort things out. I'm just going off the fact that if you say a team will do bad in pre-season, they tend to do well. Uh, 14th is Burnley. 15th is Sean Dush, is Everton. 16th is Bournemouth. I think they're going to scrape relegation. 17th is Fulham. Um, I'm going off most squares uh, on Twitter's warnings. <laughs> and then, as I said, my relegation, uh, Nottingham Forest, I think, a horror season for them. Luton Town and Sheffield United, who I'm happy to admit I've not linked into in any way whatsoever. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, th- I think that's a safe call there. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll save a couple of disagreements I have for my predictions, but yeah, I think that's pretty good stuff. Why don't we have yours now, Baran? Yeah, I mean, uh, I do agree with a lot of things Alex said. Um, one of them being Manchester City as title winners. Um, I just can't see anyone else. And oh, you're pushing know. the boat out there. <laughs> yeah. That's a hot take. Clip that up. <laughs> um, I do think Arsenal come next. Uh, they'll repeat what they did. United come third with a chance of coming second. So, Arsenal United, I think, will be close. Second, third. Um, at fourth, uh, I'm going to put Liverpool. I think they'll improve. At fifth, I'm going to put Newcastle. I think they will drop off, but not as much as people say. They'll still be around there. At 6th and 7th, I am going to give slots to Brighton and Aston Villa. I actually don't think they'll drop off that much. I love their managers. I like their signings. I think Villa and Brighton are going to finish above, above Chelsea and Spurs. So that okay. leaves yeah, that leaves Chelsea at 8th, Spurs at 9th. Um, yeah, this is where it starts getting confusing. I probably have Brentford next. They're a safe bet. Um, Crystal Palace, uh, after that, they are also good. Um, let's see. Um, Everton, I think they'll be fine. West Ham, I think they'll be fine. Wolves, I think they'll be uh, okay. Um, Burnley, I think they'll just escape relegation. Um, Nottingham Forest also, I think, will escape relegation. So, I think the ones who are going down are Sheffield, uh, Luton, and Fulham. Wait, where do you put Bournemouth? Okay, Bournemouth are also in that mid-table mediocrity bench, you know, 12th or 13th. I think All I forgot right. them. Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Interesting. I mean, obviously, most interesting was the Chelsea Tottenham thing. Yeah, so... I, I gasp at that. <laughs> so let's let me quickly uh, say mine. We're all Manchester City for the title, so very cool. Arsenal second, United third. I was actually, yeah, as Alex said, I'm not that high on Liverpool, but I'll give them fourth. But it might not be that easy again. I'll give them fourth. Chelsea, I'm going fifth because I think they'll be decent on a Pochettino. 
Uh, so I completely disagree there, Varun. Uh, Newcastle sixth. I'll say Brighton seventh ahead of Tottenham. Uh, I think they'll be all right, but I think mainly because Tottenham won't click so quick under Ange as we discussed in last episode. That that's perfectly fine. But I think they they should settle for eighth. I say Villa ninth. Uh, Brentford top half, so tenth. I'm going high on Bournemouth. I'm going Bournemouth eleventh. Then I'll say Everton, Palace, Fulham, Burnley, Forest, Wolves just about surviving, West Ham relegated, and Sheffield United and Luton and Luton. So yeah, I can I see think... that happening though. I can see that happening. I don't. Uh, it's not as uh, crazy West Ham. Yeah, I, if they, especially I if they don't sort this mess. Exactly. I I I maybe would have hesitated to say something like this. Like before last season, but after Leicester went down, I can completely yeah. see it happening. So that that's my that's my table. And I think that's that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much, guys, for listening. And of course, big thanks to you guys, uh, Alex and Varun. Excuse me for joining uh, me on this episode. You can follow all of us on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called. Uh, I'm at Shailat Neel. Uh, Alex is at Euro Expert underscore uh, Varun runs the Devils DNA account, so that's at the Devils DNA, uh, as you would say. Uh, and uh, you can obviously follow Get Football as well uh, at Get Football EU, and then from there you can find all of our accounts for all of the various country-specific uh, ones we have. And please also, of course, do keep a lookout on all, all, all our outlets where. As I said, we'll be covering uh, football from across Europe and the world with all sorts of things like news, videos, uh, opinions and analysis like these ones. Uh, so do keep a lookout for that. Uh, you can find links to all, all that sort of stuff uh, in the notes of this show as well. So in your podcast app or wherever you're listening, you can head to the description and find all of that. And of course, uh, if you can, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you could rate the podcast and give us a five star review because that really helps us uh, in terms of reach and of course uh, you know sharing on socials as well would be massively appreciated but thank you very much for listening as i said big thanks to you guys alex and varun and we'll catch you around for the next one until then take care goodbye